Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you here. And uh, those of you that are watching online, it's great that you're tuning in with this. I uh, always appreciate the encouragement when people start talking about our community and why they want to belong here. Obviously, it's an encouragement to hear that the preaching's good. Um, we were sitting in our blocking meeting this morning, and Shannon's always great. She's like, Brad's going to bring his gospel fire, and she always does this kind of thing. And I said, I just hope it's relevant to somebody. And uh, Rob was sitting behind us going, like, you're preaching from the Bible, and we're worried about relevance? Like, wow. So it's, uh, but it really is fun to see uh, people take a step to belong to this family, and we want to just keep encouraging you. I had a great privilege to sit down with someone yesterday, and uh, just had a great two-hour discussion just about faith and walking with God. It was terrific. And uh, I can't remember, I don't know where they went, but I saw Bill and Lisa Abel are here this morning. I, where'd they go? Oh, there you are. Good. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Bill runs our, our camp, as it were. It's, well, it's his camp. We just, you know, we're part of it. Uh, he, he and Lisa had done an absolutely amazing job with that camp. Uh, they did some phenomenal stuff through COVID that just kept it thriving. And uh, I, I really appreciate them because uh, we have eight regions in our network and all of them are selling their camps off because they're just getting killed with trying to bear the, boat, uh, the financial load of it. And uh, we're the ones not doing it. Uh, one, because they've done a great job of diversifying their revenue and, and getting other churches involved. And so it's just a great privilege to have you here this morning and enjoy and rest. We won't have you even speak this morning. So... Um. But let, bow, bow with me and we'll pray before we step into the scriptures. You know, Father, what a great delight it is to know that we have absolute freedom to enter into your presence at any time of any time of the day, any time of the week, and we will catch your ear. To know that you're a God that is not silent, he is, you are not one that is far from us, that you have promised that you are always attentive to who we are and what journey we're on. And we ask this morning you would continue to speak into our heart by your word and the spirit of God to take truth as we unpack it from the scriptures and have our hearts wide to understand and evaluate our own journey according to what those truths are in your scriptures. Father, our greatest desire, as clumsy as it may be at times or feel, we want to live for your glory and we want your righteousness to define the reality of our life. Father, we have had experiences in life where we have this renewed sense that there's no greater life we could live other than the one that we're living for Jesus. And pray that you would refresh that in our own hearts and minds, that you will continue to spark us to the eternal realities of this journey that we're in with you. We ask that even this morning you will continue to speak deeply into our heart and mind, not just as new information, but where the Spirit of God can get a hold of our beliefs and values and reshape them so they reflect a clear picture of what your word says. We entrust ourselves to you and thank you for the opportunity for this freedom to get together. We just ask again that your word would triumph over our brokenness and we give you thanks in Christ's name, amen. Mark chapter four, starting at verse 35, says this. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking 
into the boat so that the boat was already filling with water and the waves were breaking on the boat and I'm sorry but he was in the stern asleep in the cushions and they woke him and said to them teacher do you not care that we are perishing and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea peace be still and the wind ceased and there was a great calm and he said to them why are you afraid have you still no faith And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, we have these snapshots in the life of Jesus, and uh, this one is unique in so many different ways. I have to admit, as I was preparing for this, I struggled a lot on what kind of angle to work on this, because there's so many facets of what's happening in this story that it's just fascinating to me to try to get different glimpses of the things that are unfolding. Uh, Let me paint you a little bit of the context. Uh, When you get into chapter 5, verse 1, you will discover that it's going to make a statement that he's going uh, to the Gerasians, which is kind of a debatable spot. There's a land area or a country south of the Sea of Galilee that is often looked at that, but it's probably more likely in the scheme of things that they are taking this boat simply across to the east side of this particular era, and uh, they're getting away from the crowds. Jesus has spent an enormous amount of time with people. And no matter whether you're an introvert or extrovert, at some point we all get exhausted. And we're going to see how this happens in terms of the event. The boat they get into is probably just a common fishing boat. Uh, The pictures that I have here, the one on the, uh, I guess your left, whatever it is, um, is a frame from an old fishing boat that they found on the north side of uh, the Sea of Galilee. These things weren't massive. They say they're probably about 27 feet And when you read this story, you discover that it gives us details that seem really weird, like Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat in the stern on a cushion. And so one of the author's portrayals of this happens to be that there's a bit of a platform at the end and Jesus is sort of tucked under it and sleeping on some kind of blankets or cushions. And so uh, that's probably somewhat of the setup that's there. I've seen other pictures where it looks like a modern-day yacht, and that's probably not what it looks like. But but as we walk through the story, there just seems some strange things. Like there's a storm that's so vicious that even those that are probably fishermen are worried that they're going to perish, and Jesus is snoozing through this. I don't know how someone does that. I mean, a light flickers at night, and I'm up. I mean, I just, I don't know how you sleep through stuff like this that's just tearing the place apart, but that's what happens with Jesus. There are some other little details that when they sail, uh, there's that little phrase in there that says there's other boats that probably sailed with them. It's a very almost insignificant phrase. Most commentators almost ignore it, but it's very unlikely that all the disciples piled into one particular boat. It's possible they took two or three Or there are some of the people in the crowds that they're leaving that got into boats trying to chase after Jesus because they want to hear more and see more from him. But as they go across this particular element, you'll discover that something unique happens, uh, unique at least in this particular situation, not necessarily unique to the Sea of Galilee, and they run into this massive storm, and it kind of rocks their world a little bit. And what's intriguing about this, as I walk you through this a little bit, is that I want to sort of look at it from the angle of how indispensable faith is in life. 
The problem with even saying, talking about faith is that it's so common in our language and how we talk that we kind of go, okay, well, I know what faith is. And my challenge to you this morning is, I don't care what you know about faith, the question is, do you really live by faith? Faith is easy to talk about. I mean, it's as common in the Christian life as, as anything is. And so it slips off our mouth easily in terms of living by faith, and we all make the basic assumption that even though we struggle, we try to live by faith on, a, on an everyday basis. This particular story is interesting for a couple of reasons, but let me begin at the front end of this story where he simply says, and on that day when evening had come, he said to the disciples, let us go across to the other side, and having and leaving the multitudes, they took him along with them, not uh, now as he was, or just as he was. Now, let me pause for a moment. The, fa- the fact that it says that it's on that day means that it's really at the end of a very long day. We're not told much about it from this verse, but there's the inference that Jesus had been ministering to people. It's part of the whole package of the previous verses where he'd been teaching parables and giving instruction to the people and probably being on mission in terms of preaching the gospel. Those are the sort of the two-pronged elements of Jesus' ministry. Preaching people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then teaching in parables because he's dealing with a group of people, the Jews primarily, who some had hardened their heart and the soil of their life was like concrete, and yet there are some that are going to respond to his message. But Jesus is running right over the old religion that the Pharisees and scribes had developed, and he's calling back people into relationship with the God who gave them life in the first place. But what I want you to notice is that when it says on that day, and uh, at the end of the day, it's evening. Evening is kind of that period of time where the sun's about ready to go down, and uh, it's kind of twilight. You, it's the sunset type of, of element. But the assumption I make is that Jesus has been ministering to people all day long. He's been teaching and being on mission and responding to needs and doing all the things that he did, and he's brought the disciples into that avenue. And what we naturally assume is that the nature of ministry or the commitment of ministry, first and foremost, is about people. It's not about programs. It's not about structures. It's not about how big we can make it. It's primarily about people. And when we lose sight of the fact that ministry is about people and the redemptive work that God wants to do in them, we get off into our own kingdom building rather than the mission of the gospel. And it's a simple point, but it's critical. When they leave the crowd, that means, it could very mean that from the time that Jesus had got in a boat to move out into the water a little bit because the crowds were so full that he sort of got a little distance so he could see everybody and everyone could see him, he's had a long day. And, And it struck me as I began to think about this that Not only is the commitment of ministry people, the challenge of ministry is there is a barrage of needs and it's like a flood. You will always run into needs and more than you can meet. But as you begin to think about that, Jesus has been doing ministry all day long, his disciples have been with him, and I suspect they're all pretty exhausted. And what it tells me very simply is that ministry is neither convenient or easy. Ministry is neither convenient nor easy. We have Jesus and the disciples at the end of this basically saying, 
we need to finish the day's ministry and mission, and we're going to take a break by going across the sea and finding refuge. We're not told exactly what they're going to do, but the assumption is, look, we've done everything we can do for the entire day. We need a break. And I want to propose to you that the biggest challenge of ministry that you and I face is that if you want ministry to be easy and you want it to be convenient, there are all kinds of things that you will miss in terms of what God wants to do through your life. Conversely, I want to suggest this, that people who simply do ministry and mission only when it's convenient will miss all kinds of things that God wants to do. And yet that's exactly our culture, even in the Christian culture is that everybody is looking for something that's not going to take too much time and it's not going to suck too much energy out of them because our schedules are full. And it's not that our schedule, the things that are in our schedules are bad. Life will always fill up every square inch and millimeter of our life. That's not the problem. Everybody's busy. Everybody's got stuff jammed into their life. But the issue is, is that God calls us as followers of Jesus to do ministry and to do mission. And if you conclude in your mind that you are only going to do that which is easy and it's convenient, then you're going to miss a great deal of what God's doing. Jesus was working with these people all day long. It was well into the evening. The disciples are exhausted. Jesus is exhausted. And we know how exhausted he is because he sleeps through a storm that threatens the life of his disciples. And so he is utterly exhausted. In fact, it even says when they depart, there's this little phrase, they take him just as he is. That's not a McDonald's ad or anything. That means they didn't bother even stopping to get food so that they'd have the strength to get across the water. They didn't take a nap before they jumped in the boat. They just took him exactly as he is. Soon as they finished, they said, all right, time out. Let's get in the boat, and we're going. I don't know if you've had days like that. I've had them on occasion over the last 40 years of ministry, where you minister all day long, you've got something for dinner, an appointment, then you've got activities after dinner, you have someone show up at your home, and you're still having discussions at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And most of us are pretty protective of our time. That you will usually say no to certain things before we say yes to them. And yet I've discovered that some of the greatest moments that I've seen God work in someone's life is that I was just willing to show up at a spot, didn't do anything miraculous, and I got to witness the fact that God would change someone's life. But it was at the most inopportune time, it was most inconvenient, and I was tired and really didn't want to be there. And yet that's exactly the way God gets the glory, I don't start taking credit for it. And the problem is, is that we want to invest our time in certain things, but I think at least in our hearts, whether anyone else gives it to it, we want to do things that make a difference for Jesus rather than being with Jesus when he makes a difference. And I'll tell you that ministry isn't convenient and it's not easy. It's going to be exhausting if you care about the mission and care about ministry at all. We can't just box it up in a program and that's all that it is. Doesn't mean those things aren't valuable, but most of what we will see often God do is outside of the box, so to speak. But as they get into this journey, we will discover that as they start heading across the sea, 
then there's this great windstorm. It's, it's labeled that way. There's this mega, there's great windstorm that kicks up. In order for you to get a little sense of it, it's the same kind of storm that you see in Jonah, chapter one, when Jonah starts running from what God wants him to do, he gets in a boat, and then you've, if you're familiar with the story, there's this massive windstorm that comes up, and it threatens the ship and the lives of everybody on it. And coincidentally, Jonah's down in the, in the cargo hold sleeping. Another person who sleeps through even the most craziest storms and situations in life. The other one that we have is in uh, Psalm 107, verse 23 through 27, where the one phrase is this, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted in the evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. The, the point here is simply that this is just not some small storm and, and a few waves that unsettle them. This one threatens the safety of everyone in these boats going across the sea. And as I understand it, the Sea of Galilee is big enough where it can kick up a bit of a storm if it wants to. And so as they're in this aspect of dealing with this storm, they start to panic. And I don't know if all, who's on the boats, it doesn't tell us who's on what boats, or if they're all on one, we can only guess, but the fact that there's other boats going across there, I would speculate at least one of them probably has some of the other disciples, and maybe others have the crowds in it. And they start to panic, and Jesus is still sleeping, and they say, look, we gotta do something here, because they're really feeling angst. They're literally feeling afraid, and they go down and wake Jesus up, and the first thing they say is, don't you care that we're perishing? You know what, I, I, the first thing that came to mind, it's interesting that they didn't say, Jesus, there's other boats out here that are being threatened by the storm, we need to help them. What they do is, don't you care that we're perishing? You ever raise that question with God? If you, if you shorten the phrase a little bit, the th- first thing it says is, Jesus, don't you care? I don't know if you've ever had that thought come to your mind. It's really not in the personal sense where I don't think that they don't think that Jesus cares about them as individuals, but they are concerned that Jesus doesn't seem to care that they're in this massive storm that could threaten their life. I mean, we've dealt with that before. You've probably heard people and maybe even said it yourself on occasion where, God, if you really love me, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Or, God, if you really cared, how come I'm facing such overwhelming circumstances in my life? Or God, if you really care, why did you put this person in my life? Because they're such a pain in the neck, they're just driving me nuts. Or God, if you care, why don't you heal me and, and solve these physical issues and these health issues that I've got? I don't know, have you ever, ever, ever got to a point in life where you're facing circumstances that seem so overwhelming that inside you were perishing? You were losing hope, you were getting discouraged, you were getting deeply frustrated, you're kind of questioning a little bit, God, do you care? Seems like kind of a, standing in the safety of this room, it seems like kind of a stupid question. What do you mean, does God care? How could God not care? And yet we've caught ourselves and found people asking this very question at times is, God, do you care? 
Now we say it mostly when it's circumstances we're facing. We don't say it quite as much when it's circumstances other people are facing. But still, we, we have this thing is that if God cared, why aren't things different? Why can't, I've prayed about this, Lord, and why can't you give it to me? Why can't you make this door open? Why? Because it just feels like you don't care. I don't know if you're in a storm right now, metaphorically speaking. Circumstances in life, whether it happens to be at work or family, whether it happens to be with friendships or jobs or work or finances or whatever it happens to be, but it's easy at times to be praying about a whole bunch of things to God and wondering, God, if you really cared, wouldn't you fix this? There was a story I ran across, and I know I've mentioned it before, but there was a husband who was struggling with Alzheimer's, and in one of his lucid moments, he wrote a letter to his wife. He said, and I want you to listen for the words of fear and loss and what he's losing. Honey, today fear is taking over. The day is coming when all my memories of this life will, that we share will be gone. You and the boys will be gone from me. I will, lo- I will have lose you and even when I'm surrounded by you. I don't want to leave you. I want to grow old in the warmth of our memories. Forgive me for leaving so slowly and painfully. Because the danger of fear is that we're losing something. We might lose our life. We might lose a loved one. We might lose possessions. We might lose an investment. We might lose something. But fear is kind of the gatekeeper of loss and disappointment. His wife wrote back to him and said, My sweet husband, I will continue to go on loving and caring for you. Not because you know me or remember our life, but because I remember you. I will remember the man who proposed to me and told me he loved me. The look on your face when his children was born, the father that he was, the way he loved our extended family. I'll recall his love for writing and hiking and reading his tears at sentimental movies, the unexpected witty remarks and how he held my hand while he prayed. I cherish the pleasure, the obligation, the commitment and opportunity to care for you because I remember you. And there's something about when Jesus stands up and starts responding to his disciples that reminds me of this story, is that they have clearly lost perspective of who Jesus is. They've they've forgotten the miracles that he's done earlier that we read in the chapters. They forgot the power that he had to heal individuals and to change circumstances and his wisdom and teaching about life. He's communicated powerfully against those who disagreed with him and he's helped the vulnerable that have been around and ostracized by others. And he comes to this very moment and Jesus stands up and I could almost hear him saying, listen, you may have forgotten who I am but I still care for you because I'm not leaving, I'm not gone. I'm right here. And there's so many times in our life that we forget about Jesus. We forget that we can have confidence and trust him and his credibility and all that he's done for us. We get slugging through life and we start to panic at the circumstances that we're facing, whether it's been self-inflicted because of our choices or because it's just things that people have inflicted upon us. And it's at that moment that fear begins to creep in and all of a sudden we begin to panic and go, God, don't you care? And I think regardless of where you're at and what station in life and how vulnerable you feel, 
and how much you feel like a victim, or whether you're losing hope or whatever it is, Jesus is going to stand up and say, listen, even though you've forgotten about who I am and how much I loved you by sacrificing my life on a cross, I care for you and I will always remember who you are. And I suspect there may be some of you here that may need to hear that this morning. That the circumstances of life have gripped your heart with a kind of fear that's paralyzing. And you don't see any hope and you don't see the pathway through and you don't know how to navigate it. And the first cry out of your heart is, God, don't you care? Do something. And so Jesus stands up and he does two things. He rebukes the wind and the sea and that great windstorm suddenly turns into a great calm. The word calm there is like the word tranquility. It's like looking when we were uh, up in Canada with my family going through uh, a train ride from Vancouver, Canada up to Jasper and then down to Banff. We stopped at some of the glacier lakes and if I thought about it before this last second, I would have put a picture up for you. But anyway, the point would be, you look out on some of these glacier lakes and the reflection of the mountains in the water is almost a perfect image with no blurring at all. And I looked at that and I go, wow, is that ever tranquil? And, and Jesus, in a command, in a, in a rebuke of the sea, turns it into a great windstorm, and all of a sudden it becomes this magnificent, tranquil, beautiful, calm spot. And then he turns to his disciples, and he gives them a bit of a rebuke as well. And he says very simply, why are you afraid? Now the word afraid here is actually different than the one you're gonna see at the end of these verses where it talks about they had this great fear about what Jesus did, but in this particular text, it's delos. It literally means to be cowardly or timid. And so Jesus says to them, basically his statement is, why are you so cowardly about this? Gosh, that would have stung a little bit. They're the disciples. They've been involved in ministry with Jesus. They had served. They had touched people's lives. They had given themselves to this idea of mission and following him. But then when it came to the circumstances that was completely non-ministry related, they were just crossing the sea, all of a sudden now, they're in this massive panic because their lives seem to be on the line. And while it may have demonstrated faith to serve with Jesus and be involved in ministry and the mission and caring for people and communicating the message of the gospel and all of a sudden now the the whole thing's reversed it's about listen do you guys who've served with me where's your faith which sounds like an oxymoron because man i've made sacrifices i've been involved in ministry i've done all these i do it by faith and i'm trying to serve the kingdom purposes and follow jesus but all of a sudden in this one circumstance they're kind of like why are you afraid why are you acting cowardly the verse is actually a really strong word in uh, Revelation 21, it is thrown into this whole list of people that will never get to heaven. But as for the cowardly, there's the word there, the faithless, the detestable, as for murders, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, who, whatever they are, idolaters, the liars, 
Their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, I don't believe Jesus for a minute is really throwing them into that category. But he's saying, the way you're acting right now, even with me present right here, is kind of along that line. You're acting cowardly. And so he rebukes them in terms of them not having any confidence in him. I remember when I was on a canoe trip, I had just gotten out of high school and got a summer tree planting job up in northern uh, Saskatchewan. And uh, the leader there had done this for years. And they had all these people around. And uh, actually, I'm sorry, that was tree planting. This is a canoe trip, and we were in northern Saskatchewan. And I went up there, and I always watched the leader because he would give instructions. And then Everybody would sort of scramble on trying to figure it out, and all I did is sort of, I didn't do anything. I just sort of watched him to see how he was responding to everybody running around like a bunch of cats. And he caught my eye one time, and I just kind of looked at him, and I kind of rehearsed the things he said in my mind. I just kind of walked over and started doing exactly what he said. Because I didn't care where all the chaos everybody else was doing. I knew that I had to stay focused on him. And what he said was the only thing that really mattered because he was the expert. He was the one that had taken these canoe trips and portages and everything else. All I had to do was watch him, not everybody else. And, it, and one of the things that we discover in this particular event, and, and I want to emphasize, this is between ministry projects. They'd done ministry all day. They had served, they'd been on mission. This was, they closed that off, now they're going across the sea and they might do ministry on the other side, but this isn't, this isn't church related. And one of the things that struck me about Jesus teaching his disciple of how indispensable faith is, is that faith is not just something that operates only when we do ministry or mission. And I know we sort of believe that, but often we kind of go, well, my sacrifice and commitment to be involved in this ministry or this program, that's a sacrifice. That's my faith step. That's an expression of my faith, and, and it is. It's great. But then when you walk out of here and go through the rest of the week, it's very easy to get disconnected from the Jesus who called us to live by faith because, well, that's what we come to church to do is to do ministry and serve. But the point that Jesus is making here is that faith is not just something that operates when we're doing ministry or mission. Faith is indispensable for our own life circumstances. Faith has to translate into everyday life if it's going to be real. He's not giving us a hobby to do. He's redefining life. And so at the heart of our following Jesus isn't just ministry and mission, it's about entrusting him with my whole life. And the disciples seem to have missed that because they'd spent a whole day exercising their faith by serving people all day long till they were totally exhausted. Now, if it was me, I'd go home and go, wow, I did good today. And then Jesus blindsides them in this storm by saying, like, dudes, why are you so afraid? Like, why are you so cowardly? Why do you have such little faith? And in this particular context, I like Granfield's idea that faith is believing that God is, God's helping power is present and active in the person of Jesus. 
Do you feel Jesus is deeply at work when something goes wrong with a client as you do when you're helping with Awana or teaching in Sunday school or being part of a church service? Are, are you that aware with, of, of who Jesus is in those moments as you are like on Sunday morning when we know we're supposed to sort of, this is a faith step? Because you and I both know we can come and put on the proper faith appearance and do faith stuff here and walk out and blow up at our family because the kids won't cooperate. Depending on how many kids you have. Or get exasperated with your spouse because when you get home there's a to-do list and you can't agree on what needs to get done. Or when you get to the office, some knucklehead has screwed things up for you and created 10 times more work that you have to get done and this is unfair to me. Where's your faith there? Where's our faith when life in everyday life goes wrong, not just in, as an expression of ministry and mission? And I think it's important for you to think about your week, not Sundays or Wednesdays or times you're officially in programs, but how does my faith look in the storms of everyday life? I, uh, I couldn't help it. I was trying to avoid it as much as I could, but I like watching some of the Avenger Marvel movies once in a while. One of my favorite is, well, one of my favorite, I don't know, I just like them all, but anyway, is the Green Lantern. Now, some of you are going to go, what's the Green Lantern? I don't know what the Green Lantern is. But, it, well, it's been around for a little while. 2011, Ryan Reynolds and uh, Blake Lively did the Green Lantern movie. And as I watched the, the movie, it's about a test pilot who becomes the first human to join a band of intergalactic warriors who are trying to create peace and justice and fight evil. Well, you've got to smile somewhere in this message. I mean, come on. But the, but the whole idea is that the Green Lanterns use the power of will to overcome the enemy of fear. And they have uh, one of these ancient eternal beings went rogue and uh, he, his power is fear. And he uses fear to destroy people. And if you watch the movie, you may not have paid as much attention to this, but everything is a battle between the will and fear. And he conquers planets and people because he feeds on their fear. And he gets chosen to be this Green Lantern, and he finally reveals it to his girlfriend or his buddy. And at one point, he tried to battle this thing and felt like he'd lost. And the three of them are in this room together, and he's like, I can't do this. This isn't going to work. They've picked the wrong person. I, I've, I'm, I've mastered the ability to walk away from things and give up and abandon one of my responsibilities. And she sort of finally has had it with him, and she goes like, what is the problem here? Like, why, what's the matter with you? Why, are you? why are you giving up again? And he blurts out right in the middle of it, I'm afraid. And I kept thinking, it's exactly what happens to us in the journey of life between Sunday and Sunday is that something happens at work, and whether you're willing to admit it or not, the greatest enemy you have to your faith is fear. And that's why you lash out at your spouse, or you snap at your kids, or you grumble and complain about the workplace. 
or we say all kinds of unkind things to people who are knuckleheads when they drive. And I think one of the things we've got to learn is that there's times that we have to recognize that we're afraid. In the movie, she gets down in front of him and kneels in front of him and looks at him and says, you know, your dad seemed to be fearless. And they get into this discussion where it's like, I'm sure that he was afraid at times. And she says, yeah, there's, there's a word for solving that issue and it's called courage. And I want to suggest to you that unlike the Green Lantern, the issue is not about our will overcoming fear in ourselves. It's about having confidence in the, in the helping nature of God in the person of Jesus. That when we are facing things that we're afraid of and that overwhelm us and that we're unsure of and we don't know how to handle it and we don't know what the solution is and we're feeling vulnerable and we're feeling weak and we're feeling overwhelmed and we want to give up and we want to run and quit, that the issue is not how much you can handle, it's how much we have faith in the God who cares about us. And yet it's so easy for us to allow our fear to paralyze us so that even our faith diminishes and we act cowardly towards the people around us and even to one another's at times because we don't know what to do and we're afraid and we don't want to admit it. And I want to suggest to you that the way we respond to the storms or the trials or the hardships or the difficulties or the moments of crisis or the disappointment or change in our life often says more about our faith than all the ministry accomplishments that we can chalk off. Because it's easy to show faith by getting involved in a ministry and getting involved in a program. And, but it's very different to have a faith that says, I'm going to rely and consider that God cares for me, even especially in the storms from Monday through Saturday when I feel vulnerable and I'm alone and I'm surrounded by people that don't care about me. But the way to respond to those things says more about our faith than all the ministry success that we can ever accomplish. And that's what Jesus is pointing out to them. Why are you afraid? Have you no faith that I care enough about you that I can do things through this storm that you can't? And so Jesus calms the storm and then the very last verse makes a really interesting observation. And it's a little bit disturbing if you want to look at it. And he said to them, verse 40, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid of Jesus. That's a little unsettling. 
Because what we need to realize is that the statement here is actually the word doubled. So when they want to talk about really overwhelmed with fear, literally saying they were fearfully fearful. They were filled up with all kinds of fear, not because of the storm, because all of a sudden Jesus had this sort of unilateral authority to just calm it like that, and they're going like, who is this guy? Are you kidding me? He, he has power over the elements? And what's, what's disturbing here is that they now are far more afraid of Jesus than they are of their circumstances. But you know what you'll discover in life? And I think we all can slip into there at one time or another. Many Christians are more afraid of what Jesus will do than their circumstances they face in life. I don't know what you want to do with that. I'm not sure I want no one to know what to do with that. But it gets to be fairly precarious when we become more afraid that Jesus is going to do something than perishing from our circumstances. Because we learn in our culture that if you really knuckle down and grin and bear it, we can probably get through a lot of stuff. But sometimes we're more afraid that God will act And I don't have the faith to keep up to it. I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 11. Without faith it is impossible to please God for those who come to God must believe that he is and he rewards those who seek him. You know, if you really want to discover the genuineness of our faith, we should set aside all the ministry accomplishments and all those kinds of things. And what we need to look at is how do you see God at work in your life Monday through Saturday. What does that tell someone else about your faith? What does that say about our confidence that we believe that God is present with us, just as present as Jesus was with the disciples, and that even in spite of the precarious circumstances or the threat or feeling like we're in harm's way or feel like our hopes are being dashed or all that I've planned is not going to happen, that I have the ability to shift my focus from my circumstances and I stare straight into the face of Jesus. And I'm not compelled to say, Jesus, do you care? It's like, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Because I need you. I need you to look after all this stuff that's so out of my control that I'm helpless. I don't know what to do and I'm afraid and I need you. Do you have the courage to admit that before Jesus? And then let him step in and do something that you would never dream possible in the circumstances that you're facing. What a remarkable story. What an earth-shaking challenge. Because the Jesus that I know, I think, came to me this week and he says, why are you so cowardly when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus with somebody else? Why are you so cowardly at times to trust me when things are out of your control? 
and you're snapping at the people around you and you're getting angry and you're afraid rather than trusting that I can navigate us through this storm. You just have to trust, you just have to have the faith that I'm personally present. I don't know quite how to deal with the idea that sometimes we're more afraid of Jesus than we are of even our life circumstances. I commend you to think about that one. And pray even this morning that maybe the first thing we need to do is get before his throne of grace and simply say, God, there's things in my life that I'm afraid because I don't know what to do and I don't know how to solve it. And I don't want to get caught saying, Lord, do you not care? Father, we have lots of things going on in life. And maybe like the disciples, we may discover more about the reality of our faith, not in the formal context of coming together as the church or being involved in ministry or programming, but in the everyday circumstances and storms of life. Whether they're trials, whether they're hardships, whether they're difficulties, whether the whole trajectory of my life has been skewed because of some bad choice that I've made or whatever. Give us the courage to admit when we're afraid. Knowing that it's not us, but our faith in who you are and your care for us that will ultimately triumph over our fears. Because the last thing that we want to do is live life that is wrapped around anxiety and worry and fear. Because that exposes something about the nature of our faith or lack of it that's quite disturbing. And while I can't fix it, I want to be before your throne of grace and say, God, I need your help because I know you care. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.